Hey, I'm Alan McGuire. And I'm Andrea Cleary. And this is Juvenalia, a podcast where we talk to an interesting person about a bit of pop culture that was important to them when they were young. Our guest today is a producer, director and writer, Paul Duan. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Alan. Thanks for inviting me. You are very welcome. Thank you so much for doing it. You have um, a very big topic that I cannot wait to jump into. So tell us what it is. Well, you asked me about things that I might have been interested or obsessed with in my teens. And I kind of thought about all the obvious things. And then I realized there was kind of a gateway drug that got me into almost everything that I was into. Music, comics, movies, whatever. And it was the music press. It was the particularly the NME, the New Musical Express, which still exists as a sort of a website, but as a shadow of a shadow of its former self. We're talking about 1979 to 1984 or 5, which is when I was about between the ages of about 14 and 19. Mm-hmm. That was when I was obsessed with it. So I kind of thought that's a kind of a gives you plenty of scope. for everything. Yeah. So what kind of a 14 year old were you before you started reading NME? Well, they talk about nerds now, and nerds are now a kind of a thing that is uh, almost something people aim for. Like my 11-year-old daughter is a very proud nerd. But like in 1979-80, being a nerd in rural Ireland was a very different thing. Mm -hmm. It basically meant that you were into stuff that absolutely nobody else gave a shit about. You know, I mean, I, I, I was reading science fiction novels and... Um, comics, you know, action comic, 2000 AD comic, Marvel comics. And uh, yeah, it was. I was a total and absolute nerd, also with very, very bad acne. So it was a really, I was a, a big hit with the ladies. <laughs> <laughs> so do you remember like what made you want to, what pick, made you pick up an enemy in the first place? I don't, I don't. Um, I really can't remember because I remember I wasn't really that into music for a long time and I think I saw something on TV we only had by the way just to give you a sense of this cultural landscape I grew up in it was RTE like one channel RTE and one channel RTE radio I mean RTE radio 2 and RTE 2 came came sometime when I was in my mid-teens I guess but it was there was very very little Mm. choice so I just remember there was like I think there was a TV show for like 40 minutes a week that put on some music videos and they had Ian Jury and the Blockheads on and Ian Jury was a strange looking man wearing makeup and glitter on his face and dressed in a very outlandish way and singing this very strange and I just was captivated by it and just thought my god this is this is insane this is brilliant and I think it was chasing after finding out more about this stuff that probably led me to pick up a music paper for the first time um, I grew up in Cashel in County Tipperary, which was a very, still is a small town, but was a very small town then, but was on the main road from, is on the main road from Dublin to Cork. And uh, it picked up a lot of pop culture detritus because uh, I think people just dropped off comics and magazines and things there that, you know, sort of on their way from here to there. So it was, you know, you could, you, it wasn't completely impossible to find countercultural stuff, but it was tricky. Mm. Um. I remember when I the first time I tried to read the enemy, I read like Select and Q for a long time before that, and so I, just, I felt like the enemy was like the harder stuff, and I found it completely impenetrable the first time I tried to read it. Like it was this whole other world where everybody knew each other and they didn't really care about inviting you in. Is that what it was like back then as well? Yeah, when you were, when you were when we were talking about this before I came over, I said it, it kind of reminds me of of Twitter now of social media because. The enemy was full of memes. It was full of in-jokes that you kind of, if you missed one issue, you might miss the key quote in an interview or the key joke that would then be the source of everybody else's jokes for the next five weeks. Yeah. So it really was, and it was like being in a gang. And if you got into it and if you got the jokes, you were in the gang. And every week there would be enraged letters from fans who were absolutely incandescent that the writers weren't taking David Bowie seriously that they were calling him Dame David and uh, <laughs> making there was a long running joke about his um, his terrible uh, film Just a Gigolo which he said was his 20, David, 20 Elvis Presley movies rolled into one and that got <laughs> trotted out every every single week in the gossip column so basically they took nobody seriously and they memed people and they memed kind of culture and that was in like 1979, 1980 so I kind of feel like yeah, you kind of, that was the thing. It was it was deliberately impenetrable, which meant that they, they hemorrhaged readers and the whole thing only lasted a couple of years. But mm. and the, the impact of having that sort of um, insider joke status and not really making it easy, especially for the musicians, you can see the impact of that even going forward after after the specific time that we're talking about, you know, 1980 to 1985 and smash hits and then mm. even further on, 
from that it gets like stranger and weirder when you get to pop world and stuff but this seems to be the the first time where it's like no we're just we, we're the we're the in crowd and you're gonna have to work really really hard to to get in here you know? yeah smash hits i've forgotten that but I, I was a huge reader of smash hits as well yeah. and that at a younger age that kind of had the same sort of you know lack of it, it didn't take stuff too seriously yeah. and it had a kind of a, cha- a chaotic and anarchic sense of humor but that was multiplied in the NME because everybody writing for the NME knew they were writing for students so yeah. they kind of went for that student level of meta stuff meta discourse whatever you mm. want to call it and uh, yeah it was it was great if you were in if, it, if you were out it was probably profoundly alienating but mm. you know How did you get in? I just started reading it and I, I mean you know I was kind of I, I, I was a reasonably smart kid I read a lot of books and I kind of you know I could fake it if I didn't know it and one of the interesting things about the NME was they would reference people like Barthes and Nietzsche and stuff uh, as if this was and I mean I'm sure half the writers were faking it because you know <laughs> a lot of them weren't terribly I mean Lads one or two early 20s yeah, like yeah. one or two of them had gone to Oxford or wherever but most of them were just basically get straight out of school to writing for the music papers and they were total autodidacts you know mm. but that suited me because I'm kind of like that myself so you'd kind of read this then you'd go I mean there was obviously no Google but I'd go to the library and try to find out what I would and then you know you'd You'd kind of busk it a bit, you know. I mean, it was years before I figured out what Barthes was on about. But, you know, you kind of, you could figure it out from the context of what they were saying. Mm. And I really liked the fact that it was kind of writing about pop and rock music, but writing it in a way that made you take other, you know, go into look at other stuff. Look at, you know, philosophers, look at, uh, you know, science fiction writers because they were big into their Ballard and their Philip K. Dick and, you know, kind of the more esoteric kind of science fiction and uh you know I, yeah it was it was it was fun to kind of crack those codes and get in there you know mm. and also it was a really funny paper i mean a, i make it sound really serious but it, it just made me laugh you know and it was full of really scathing pieces about people like the rolling stones who were rock and roll dinosaurs who nobody cared about you know i mean that took me years as a result to actually like the rolling stones and i like <laughs> them a lot now but yeah you know oh so it's mad the way um a magazine that you like just turning against someone for no reason can just totally make you avoid them for years and years and years. I'm trying to think. Like, Blur got that for a long time in the 90s because everybody just went, no, we like Oasis now. Fuck Blur. And you're like, oh, no, Blur were the better band now. You look back and kind of like, they... But, like, just because, you know, David Quantic was like, I I prefer Oasis. Or Paolo Hewitt was like, I love Oasis. Mm -hmm. So now we're going to write about Oasis all the time. Well, I remember Blur getting a lot of coverage in the the pop magazines. Yeah. Like, it'd be... Damon Albarn would be, like, looking really beautiful on the front Mm -hmm. of, like pop hits or whatever kind of pop magazine it is so they they definitely had their space over there but it is so funny that once once a publication is like no like Mm. that's that's the impact that it had then like now like you said the enemy being shadow of its former self it's nearly it's nearly a parody of itself like Mm. i remember last year at at the end of last year was like oh here's the enemy's top 100 songs of the decade so far or something and there was like 14 oasis songs on it (laughs) 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 and it's like come on lads you know this isn't this isn't the scathing you know Mm. intellectual music criticism that you once were this is just a pastiche of the past it's such a shame you know they're not kingmakers anymore like probably Arctic Monkeys was the last thing they made happen I would say which was like 15 years ago now probably I mean the music press doesn't have any reach as far as I can tell for people I mean I think in the same way that music doesn't have the same reach it had but in the period I'm talking about what was interesting was those kind of decisions weren't cut and dried I remember the two things that strike me were um, the Smiths and hip hop and black music those two things were really really Mm subject of a lot of argument one of the things I mean I really liked the Smiths when they when they came out you know it's yeah. like, this is, you know because I'm that old but really quickly it became apparent that Morrissey had some serious problems when he was talking about reggae and you know he, he did the song with the chorus when hang the DJ you know panic and I, I think it was around that point that people were kind of going geez Morrissey you know do you have a problem with black music do you have a problem yeah. with mm. black people and in the pages of the NME this whole thing got hashed out in 1980 whatever that was five same argument people are still having now on twitter yeah but back then it was like basically pick your side you know do you if you you know and i kind of went yeah you know what the smiths aren't so good anymore 
screw am I going to listen to the go-betweens or something instead mm. and but that went on for weeks and weeks possibly years you know mm. and the other thing was uh, when the enemy started to get really behind hip-hop and put people like Schooly D I think Schooly D was the first hip-hop artist on the cover of the enemy and he was also the first hip-hop artist to play in Dublin supporting Big Audio Dynamite um, Mick Jones's band and uh, it alienated so many of their mm. readership I mean because mm. all these people who were buying it to read about New Order, buying it to read about Morrissey, buying it to read about The Mission or somebody, and suddenly they're being faced with, you know, these young black men from, you know, New York or South Central mm. LA yeah. or whatever. And they were like, we have no interest in this. And again, that whole thing was prefigured what happened many years later when Kanye West headlined uh, Glastonbury and you saw the Absolutely. same yeah. exact debate happen. That's what I mean by saying that the enemy during that period kind of was like a microcosm of an awful lot of the stuff that I've seen happen in the last few years in social mm. media. I read that the, um, around 1985 when they started introducing a lot more hip-hop acts, if they'd put a hip-hop artist on the cover their sales would Absolutely. plummet. And they so it's like, as a publication, what are you supposed to do there? You know? Well, what they did was they basically fired all their writers and hired yeah. a whole new bunch of people like Stuart McConey and Mary Ann Hobbs and people who were perfectly fine music journalists, but they were much more in that kind of straight down the line, let's write a review of the album and not talk about, you know, Deleuze. You yeah. know, we're going yeah. to write talk about who the bass player is. So, um, and who are now all sort of radio, BBC radio DJs, you know, whereas the era I'm talking about was all people like Ian Penman and uh, uh, Paul Morley, you know, all these kind of very esoteric writers mm. and uh, they kind of disappeared off into different directions and ended up with very different careers. But what was really interesting, just mentioning Paul Morley's, you know, this thing was, it was, there was a real sort of, permeability in the culture at that time because remember Paul Morley was just like a really kind of irritatingly pretentious music journalist then the next thing you know he started this record label with Trevor Horn which had Frankie Goes to Hollywood which was the biggest thing of like 1983 or 4 I can't remember what year it was that came out and then started making movies and you're kind of going Jesus these guys went from just being kind of scribbling for the music press mm. to having a huge cultural impact and everybody was wearing these uh, t-shirts that said arm the unemployed which apparently was a phrase he'd come up with as their that was their really? promotional yeah their promotional yeah. t-shirt said frankie says arm the unemployed <laughs> you know and that was kind of you know that's that's pretty countercultural you know yeah. it's really getting something i'd love to get my hands on one of those yeah, yeah well they're probably i mean <laughs> god man they just immediately see one you're you're just back in the early 80s yeah, for me yeah. anyway but there was it was there was a kind of a thing where you felt like these kind of crazy radical ideas could get into the mainstream via the medium of pop music because mm. frankly as hollywood were enormous i mean you mm. know three number one consecutive hits that you know i mean it was it was an incredible story so you know yeah there was there was a sense that maybe you could change the world with this stuff which turned out to be erroneous i have to say but yeah it's it is uh, like all the, a lot of those early 80s guys um did go on to other things whereas as you said the ones who replaced them are still music people like Stephen Swells was like a video director yeah. and like an award winning video director and uh, Quantic, David Quantic obviously like was on the day today and Harry Hill and is a comedy writer more than a music writer now yeah I didn't know Harry Hill wrote for the enemy no David Quantic wrote for Harry oh, Hill oh that's right of course yeah, yeah. sorry yeah. yeah but Swells Stephen Wells was a really good thing because that leads me into the political thing because Stephen Wells was a skinhead he was a left wing skinhead and he was a big proponent of the whole kind of red wedge movement which was when I mean, it sounds so quaint and kind of old-fashioned now. All these rock bands decided to get behind Labour and try to and did a load of gigs to get Neil Kinnock's Labour into government, which didn't happen. But you saw bands like the Redskins and the Mekons and Billy Bragg and all these people kind of getting together under the rubric Red Wedge, backed by a bunch of writers like St Stephen Wells, who were left-wing skinheads, left-wing kind of, but you know, working class, and they um, they got overtly political, which. I, I'm trying to think if that would happen now. It seems like it would be kind of almost pathetic now because bands don't have that influence. With, with with politics now, I think it's it's that you're you're anti the thing. Like the the enemy put the leader of the Labour Party on its cover twice. Yeah. Like yeah. mental, absolutely crazy. <laughs> Whereas now, uh, in the the kind of politics of music now is is where pop is the counterculture. You know, it's mm. like like popular hip-hop is the counterculture because it's anti-Trump, it's anti-something, but there's not a whole lot that people are pro these days, you know, so for for there to be like a, we are a pro-labor magazine, very strange to get my head around, like I can't imagine that. Yeah, you know? neither can I, and it's, it's a weird, it's a real change because that was a period when music was very political, you mm. know, 
and it seemed natural. And you you wanted to know who your favorite pop star is, what their political views were. Mm. Now it, I mean, I don't really want it. No. Well, that now it's in the music. You yeah. can hear it right there. I guess you, you don't really have to. You don't really have. You to can see who, they, who they retweet now. Yeah, that's <laughs> so. it. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. it. Like you can just, I, yeah, you can just kind of tell now if you. Now it's just so much more straight down the middle. You're either for, for or against. You, you either believe in climate change or you don't. You <laughs> yeah. know, it's it's one of those things where, yeah, maybe there was a, perhaps more complex views back then because we didn't have everybody just shouting into the ether on Twitter mm. all the time, you know. Mm. There was also a thing, I, I think, that journalists were a bit more... I mean, journalism now is a very... It's kind of... All the journalists I know are just kind of... If they're working, they're really lucky to be working. If they're yeah. making a living, they're really lucky to make making a living. I mean, in nineteen late seventies, early eighties, you could make a living out of it, and you could be kind of you could still be kind of wild. I mean, one of my favorite writers then and now um, was Ian Penman, who's uh, who's great on Twitter. His tweets as uh, paw, paw Boy One, I think. But he had his career in the NME. It came to an abrupt end when he went to interview Nicholas Roeg, and. He asked, Nicholas Roig said, what do you want to drink? And he said, I'll have a whiskey. And Roig handed him a bottle of whiskey. And then they got absolutely shit-faced. And when Penman wrote up the interview, it was like in a cubist style with fragmented sentences that were... That went, that. And it was completely like a work of art rather than an interview because he, mm. he fundamentally, there wasn't enough there. He kind of... So uh, they printed half the interview and then they fired him. Oh, that's such a shame. <laughs> I know. And then he, uh, he, he became a heroin addict for a while but told everybody he'd gone to Los Angeles to make films with Paul Schrader. I mean, you know, you can't see... A journalist in 2019 kind of getting away with this. Well, because they all have full-time jobs in IT, yeah. you know, and yeah. anyone that's writing about music now, like myself included, I like the, the idea that I could, you know, fully sustain myself writing about music is mm. bizarre. Like, I couldn't imagine it, you know. Yeah, like right. if you could, like, go on tour with a band for three weeks yeah. across America, you, yeah. nobody has the time for there that. There you go. There's that's like eight other freelance commissions you've had to turn down to do yeah, that. So, exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's a different world now. It's, mm. yeah. Unless you're rich, which is the problem, you know, because this is the pro it means that basically the people who have the freedom to do this are already privileged when they start. Mm, yeah. Whereas all these guys were basically, they were they weren't making any money. Yeah. Oh yeah, like the whole working class autodidact thing doesn't, doesn't really happen anymore. No. Whereas it's it was the eighties pretty much it was yeah. like from from Danny Baker up to Jarvis Cocker, like it's just yeah, and like Vic Reeves even it's all. Mm. No, it doesn't happen. It's all Oxford yeah. people now. Danny Baker's an interesting one because when I started reading the NME, it was the last years he was writing for it, and he was the only person writing about soul music, the only person writing about mm. black music. And it was kind of, I mean, I think they gave him leeway because he had been early, he was one of the original punk guys who had a fanzine called Sniff and Glue, and it was absolutely seminal, and he kind of, they couldn't criticize him. But, you know, he was going off to to spend a month with Earth, Wind and Fire and write a six-page article about, you know, which was brilliant. And I was reading it going, this is amazing. Nobody else mm. is writing. Or he discovered, I think he was the first person to write about Prince in the UK. And people hated that. I mean, they mm. just mm. really, they, they were like, why can't you go back to writing about The Stranglers or something like that? Yeah. You know? mm. um, and it's kind of, it, it, it made me aware, I mean, there was no kind of racial... Um, tension in Ireland. The only people who were non-white that I knew were Indian doctors who, you know, come to town, you know. But you'd read about this and you'd kind of go, okay, well, it seems like race is a very hot topic in, mm. you know, for the, even in a very kind of, even for the kind of educated student-y kind of middle class who would definitely be the audience for the NME, they were very iffy about what they considered to be disco or, yeah. you know, pointless, this kind of pointless black music that doesn't have any intellectual content. Mm. So that it was fascinating that he kind of threw himself into that deliberately mm. and kind of, again, eventually parted ways with the NME because they just didn't want to do it anymore. They weren't mm. interested in Michael Jackson, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he was definitely trying though because I remember I found a list of like their top 50 albums of the year for and singles and stuff they made like Grace Jones or album of the year in 1981 oh yeah and Grandma's Flash was like their second best single of the Completely, year and stuff yeah. they were Kid they were totally yeah. the the readership and the actual enemy themselves were definitely on different pages for what they That's wanted it. and I kind of love that you know it was kind of I, I suppose it kind of like you know as somebody who spent my, most of my life kind of on the slightly um, on, on the niche side of things I kind of I think I got that taste from reading the enemy and having them champion Kind of make they made their fan, they made their readers a bit angry with them, and I like mm. that. I like the fact that their mm. readers were pissed off, and didn't as I say, it didn't last because you know obviously their readership declined, and they went, "Holy shit, we got to reverse this and start mm. writing about, you know, white 
post-punk new wave rock and roll again but you know for a while it was glorious you know when they were writing about Kid Creole and the Coconuts and uh, you know Grandmaster Flash and taking it all seriously and I was out there trying to find these records and going this is great yeah how easy was it was it to find that that kind of stuff not 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 that easy I mean I still yeah. remember how f- absolutely thrilled I was when I made a trip to Dublin and uh went to Basement X Records, which was on Bachelor's Walk, and found a copy of the second Suicide album, which was not exactly an easy thing to find. Or, you know, finding your uh, Otis Redding or your whatever, and then bringing yeah. them home. And again, it's all tied in with the with the old thing of, like, people my age going, if you bought a record in that period, you know, it costs such a big amount of your, you know, your, your, your spending that you would, even if you didn't like it, you'd listen to it 40 times before you gave it away or mm, sold it or yeah. swapped it. Oh, for sure, yeah. Because, you know, you had to. It was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and li- like this. Mm. So it made you listen to music in a very different way. But, you know, I mean, enough of that stuff. Flotsam and Jetsam made its way to Tipperary that I was able to build up a reasonable collection of weird records to freak out my friends with mm. and get, and the, get the, the, the response, which I still get sometimes from people where they go, you're not like this, you're just pretending to like this to make you look cool. That <laughs> 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 kind of... Isn't it amazing though the trust that um, people that re- readers have? I mean, ne- now if if you're reading or you're recommending something in in a review, say like this is a five star album, you should listen to it. Somebody just needs to pop onto Spotify, listen to it for a couple of seconds, and then you know, get, if they don't like it, they don't like it. Whereas the the trust you have to have in that publication to go and spend your money, of which like this is a huge proportion of it to buy something bring it home and and then listen to it and then you're hearing it for the first time it's just it's worlds away from how we we consume it now mm. now it's it's like you know playlist culture or you give it 30 seconds on the on the opening song and you're like no nah, not for me but mm. like even i i remember being a teenager and like I, I would have been buying CDs and yeah, if, if I bought a CD and I didn't like it, I'd absolutely be sitting down and make, making sure that I liked it. Like I had to. I think that's how I got into Radiohead. Like I was like, I was like, I don't know about this. And then, and then I was like, OK, yeah, no, I get it now. But if you don't spend that amount of time with it and, and if you don't have a publication like The Enemy to say, we know you mm-hmm. and we're going to push you on this. We're not just going to give you another four white lads with guitars. Mm-hmm. If you like this, this will challenge you, you know? Yeah. Weirdly, the kind of Spotify algorithm has taken that over in my life now because yeah. it's incredibly accurate. And I kind of, you know, they, I get my Spotify playlist and it goes like, you're going to like this. And then I sit down and I glumly realize that they have my taste absolutely nailed. Isn't it mm. terrifying? It scares yeah. me. It's so, so scary. Yeah. But, you know, so there's some computer sitting somewhere in uh, Silicon Valley now knows more about what I'm going to like next than my mates do, you know. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, it's still great that, you know, when people on, you know, my big discovery from last year was Richard Dawson, who's an amazing um, a musician, singer from the north of England, and I think that was a word of mouth recommendation from mates. And you know, these things are usually they're invaluable. But mm. you know, at the end of the day, Spotify is my mate these days. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's the one thing that, like, when when I'm going through like my budget, or if I'm like, oh, I, I need to stop this subscription to that. It's like Spotify is like the bottom row on the Maslow hierarchy <laughs> yeah. of needs. Like, it is food, shelter, my Spotify subscription. Yeah. You know? but also I don't know how. I afforded living before I had when I was buying CDs. Yes. Like when I got my first job out of college when I was like 23 and I used to like buy two, three albums a week and like I don't have that much money anymore. No. I don't know where, where, I had, where I was finding that money to do that. Yeah. It's just crazy I buy crazy like one LP, maybe two LPs a month on payday and I mm. feel guilty about it. Oh yeah. Like yeah. They're so <laughs> expensive. I went to my first vinyl listening thing this week up in a bar in Parnell Street where the people were coming and, and reserving tables to come in and sit down and listen to a guy putting on Velvet Underground albums on vinyl. I'm kind mm. of going, this is basically like, you know, a student party when I, you know, yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. but now it's in, in a bar and, you know, people are going, oh, it's on vinyl. It's all very <laughs> hip. And it was kind of great, but like, yeah. Yeah, it kind of made the, spe- created a specialness to the whole thing, but mm. yeah. Because you don't really do that anymore because everybody's on headphones and like listening at their desk and stuff. You don't. I remember this is a tangent probably, but Sufjan Stevens had a secret song that he exchanged with someone in exchange for a song, and the guy oh, the wouldn't. He, yeah, he wouldn't yeah. put it up online. He wouldn't give it to anybody. You'd only have them. They had to come over and listen to it with a cup of tea, and that was the only way you could hear this song. And putting it into a situation like that, people were outraged. They called it like twee bullshit, and I was like, if it was like a Tom Waits song, 
yeah. you would be totally on board with this. It's just because of Sufjan Stevens, you're annoyed. But it's just making people listen to things properly and actually sit down and listen to it, I think, is the thing. Yeah. Bonnie Prince Billy took it even one step further because he hates streaming music and all of his music was not, his music wasn't available on Spotify until recently. Mm. And then when his record label took the decision to make his music available on Spotify, he went on holidays with his wife to Hawaii and he spent, he said he spent two weeks recording, like writing, recording and mixing an album in his head. And then he, oh when it was God. finished, he said, right now I'm never going to release that album. I love that <laughs> I, so I much. absolutely love Bonnie Prince Billy for that because it's the best response to streaming. He was like, no, you can't have this. It's mm. just for me now. I love that so much. That's Beck also did that thing where he just released an album of sheet music <laughs> and no recorded version. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I didn't know is, that. Yeah, so it's called Song Reader. Um, uh, he ended up releasing a compilation album of other people covering the songs, but he never actually, he never played the songs. It's just a book of sheet music, which is great. It's really cool. The songs are good as well. It's annoying. I think, as, as I've played them, I think they're good. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> as it's played in your head yeah. while you're reading the sheet music. Well, that's the yeah. thing, because sheet music was the original. I mean, um, I, I, my friend, I've been working with a guy called Bill Drummond, who's an artist and a musician and done a lot of pop music. And he told me that he thinks the era of recorded music you know, started with sheet music and mm. ended it with um, Napster. And that was mm. it. I mean, basically, the pretense that there is a music industry is really just a kind of a pretense now, because the point at which, you know, there was a period between the beginning of sheet music sales through the, you know, 78 era, into you know, all, all through vinyl and all that up to CDs that ended. And once Napster, once digitally shared music became the thing, that's it. The 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 profession that we think of as being a professional musician selling recording and selling songs is now no more. And mm. anybody who thinks it is, is basically kidding themselves because most of the big stars now, they're making their money out of ancillary means. You know, it's not mm. really about selling records. It's like the record, the, the pop music career enables you to have some other kind of career which yeah. you can make money out of. And like, I mean, have you ever tried in the past maybe five years to buy piano sheet music? It is so expensive. Oh, really? Like, yeah, yeah. it's it's crazy. Yeah. And... Yeah, so that like that m- music as a means of like physical distribution. I know vinyl is having its kind of its its comeback at the moment, which I think is really cool. But you know, people they're more kind of buying these these legacy albums. They're making sure that they have their favorite Nick Cave albums. They're making sure that they have yeah. the Velvet Underground. And, you know, they're they're building their library now. And that money or revenue isn't going towards supporting the artists whose music it is it's going towards major labels who yeah. rely on streaming. So it's not, it doesn't churn the way it used to where it's money in, money out or money in, product out. Yeah, you know? and I mean, and, uh, again, on another tangent, that whole story that came out a few weeks ago or a couple of months ago about the burning of the archive where all the masters were kept yeah, for yeah. 40 or 50 years of recorded masters for various different massive yeah. musical acts. That made me think about, because a lot of those people, that 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 fire happened like 10 years ago and somebody in the article pointed out that some of those artists have had remastered recordings issued since then so obviously the record, record company isn't remastering from masters they're mm. remastering from some kind of digital copy and people have been sold a pop you know with these kind of like supposed like you know new releases of or you know the the best ever audio of version of this and i think people are going to get much more cynical about this kind of reissue culture that we're getting yeah. the whole box set thing of People my age being sold, you know, I mean, I have bought my big star box set and my Velvet yeah. box set and all that, but like there is a limit. It's going to run out. We are going to. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like I've someone who I love and is definitely they're really scraping the barrel with reissues is Elliot Smith. Yeah. They, for his 50th birthday, they brought out two reissues like last month. I got really and annoyed by that. The extra stuff is just, it's not in any way essential. It's not there. Like there's already a whole two albums of like outtakes and rarities and stuff of him. It's mm. like this stuff is just. Nothing really. There's only so many different ways you can package the You're not learning limited anything amount new of music that Elliot yeah. Smith, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Produ- like produced and released. Mm. Like just let let it live, you know, or let it lie. Mm. We don't need to repackage it and put a shiny thing on it. I mean, one one of the only sort of um, like I I do look at those those you know special edition LPs and the, the record store day things as just like cash grabs and they do really annoy me. But the only one that I bought because it was just so beautiful was the David Bowie Black Star one that they did for the record store day after his death. So mm. it was, he died in the January, record store day is like well, springtime-ish. And then the one after that, they did this reissue of the Black Star 
um, album and I was like I hate that I'm doing this I'm like walking <laughs> up in like Tower Records just being so annoyed at myself and handing over my 80 euro or whatever it was and I was yeah. like just take it and don't ever talk to me again but yeah mm. yeah I, I do I feel very cynical about the about yeah. reissue culture for sure and the last of my equivalent was when they reissued when they issued the box of all the takes of every single take of uh, the Stooges second album Funhouse called the Complete Funhouse Sessions which I've only listened to once all the way through <laughs> it's just such an incredible thing to have here's every single 19 takes of TVI you know yeah. but that is honestly it's kind of like you know trying to buy back your the feeling of being 17 and hearing those records for yeah. the first time yeah. yeah that's the problem they're selling that to us they're selling us our our own youth yeah. in a box for 150 quid and it's sort of selling the idea that you had it right the first time like like yeah oh no kids these days are wrong because look look how good even the outtakes were back then it's it's yeah. selling that idea of like pop music is bad and you mm. you you had it right the first time when when you were a teenager that's when the best music was and it's like no don't be ridiculous like come on <laughs> what I really liked recently and it only happened because their their hand was forced was the Radiohead tapes I oh, mean yeah. the eighteen I hours did, yeah and I was bet into them yeah. uh, because it what it revealed to me was when you hear all those demos you're like I've definitely played things like that on my guitar but yeah. there's between that and what came out in Looking Computer there's a magic there mm. and you can hear the lack of magic in it mm. I find really interesting and just hearing I'm pretty sure they're chronological and to actually hear a thing develop from something you could do to something you definitely cannot do yeah. is a really interesting thing but you don't get that space in most reissues because mm-hmm. they are even the funhouse thing but they're already in the studio at that stage yeah. you know mm. whereas reissues are really carefully curated you get like one demo one yeah. alternate version what I found or, with, yeah. the, with the Radiohead uh, tapes was like I I always get annoyed whenever authors are like oh no the well not annoyed but I, I get frustrated because they're they're saying like oh this is the finished product like your your first draft will be garbage mm. and hearing what what was the first draft of probably my favorite album ever recorded and hearing just kind of how bad it sounded initially yeah. I was like yeah this gives me hope and pause that <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll never get over hearing the demo of London Calling by The Clash it's one of the worst things Is I've it? ever really? heard and you listen to that and then you listen to the record that came out and you just go how did they mm, literally how hard work get from here to here <laughs> yeah I guess and yeah. a really good producer because yeah. it sounds amazing and the demo mm. I mean I encourage anybody listening to this to seek out the demo of London Calling if you want to hear how bad something can sound really astonishing I love that mm-hmm. yeah so you were saying yeah, you work with, you're working with Bill Drummond a lot now yeah. was he someone you would read about the enemy back then or absolutely I mean yeah, the yeah. enemy absolutely ate up because I mean just you know the thing is Bill Drummond was a manager he was a band mm. manager managing <clears throat> two of the big Liverpool bands of the era Echo and the Bunnymen and uh, the Turtle Explodes, but before that he'd been in a band called um, Big in Japan, which featured people who went on to be the lead singer, Frank Costa Hollywood, the guy who wrote that incredibly popular um, World Cup song. Oh, the, uh, Ian Brody from Lightning Yes, Season. Ian Brody, yeah, yeah. people yeah. like that. So it was kind of like he was really in with the right people, and so he was being written about from the age of probably 19, and then as a you know 20-something band manager, he did all these things which at the time were considered to be publicity stunts, like sending Echo and the Bunnymen to do a, a gig in uh, Iceland while at the same time sending Teardrop Explodes to do a gig in Papua New Guinea because they were both on opposite ends of the same ley line and, you know, not <laughs> bothering about the fact that the Teardrop Explodes didn't have any fans in Papua New Guinea <laughs> and Echo and the Bunnymen had maybe two fans in Iceland. But, yeah. you know, these extraordinary stunts at the time seemed like basically the work of somebody who was just trying to get column inches in uh, in the, in the music press but then over time it became apparent that actually what he was doing was a kind of a mad kind of performance art he wrote a brilliant article wrote, he, he wrote a book called 45 when he reached the age of 45 he re- released a book of essays and he's going to release another one at the age of uh, 78 I believe it's kind of like so I, I think at the age of 33 and a third he retired from the music business for the first time so I mean mm-hmm. none of these numbers mean anything to anybody now but they were <laughs> The speeds yeah. at which you played your there record. There's a switch yeah. on your final record. So, yeah. you know, yeah. um, he was constantly getting written up in the music press. Then he was the manager of these bands. Then he left to become a, an A&R man, man, which he hated. Then he left the music business at the age of 33 and a third. And he became a hip-hop artist 
uh, with a band called the Justified Ancients of Moomoo. And it was the most ridiculous thing ever, this man in his 30s, two men in their 30s, Jimmy Cauty and Bill Drummond, um, releasing an album of really terrible hip-hop um, <laughs> called uh, What the Fuck is Going On? Um, and gradually... Inspired by Marvin Gaye? No, or? no, I, I, no. I mean, they were basically trying to do kind of political... Uh, ranty hip hop inspired right. by people like Public Enemy and LL okay. Cool J but uh, I was talking to um, Tony Thorpe who ended up being their kind of samples and you know music guru guy and he said he was a DJ playing club music and sampling and stuff and he heard this record and he went I couldn't believe how bad this record was. I had to go and meet. I had to go and meet these guys because they were sampling like the Beatles and ABBA, and I was sampling cool stuff like James Brown. And I had to go and meet. And he ended up becoming part of their organization, and ended up they ended up actually making doing this strange trip from making some of the worst music that anybody's ever heard to being one of the biggest, being the biggest selling singles act in the world in 1991 with the KLF mm. and Justified and Ancient and all that stuff and then leaving the music business um, machine gunning the audience at the Brit Awards with blanks burning all their money in a boathouse on the Isle of Jura in the middle of the night and you know and leaving everything behind to be artists so years later I mean I was fascinated by all this and this was all chronicled in the music press who mm. treated Bill Drummond as a kind of a cross between a sort of an eccentric uncle and a kind of Malcolm McLaren wannabe mm. kind of media manip manipulator, which he really wasn't. But he was kind of, he had a knack of doing things that they could write about. So years later, I ended up um, looking for somebody to kind of make a film about after I'd made my first, I'd made my third film and I was tired and tired of doing tricky kind of working with difficult people. You know, some with worthwhile results, but tires you out working with difficult people. And I thought, well, who's an inspiring person? Well, I'll email Bill Drummond and see what he's into. And as a result, we ended up making two films together. So uh, first of which comes out in um, UK and Irish cinemas in the end of September. It's called Best Before Death. And it's about his artwork traveling around the world and uh, doing these quite mundane things like baking cakes and giving them away, building beds and raffling them and shining shoes mm -hmm. and making soup and doing these extremely... Just things that he likes doing just with, but with having to kind of create a little community around him wherever he goes, which mm. kind of helps him with this stuff. So it's really about, it's about art and about a sense of community and about stripping things down to their basic mm. needs. It's also very funny. Mm. If you look at the trailer, I think you'll get a sense of the funniness of the film because he's a funny person. How is it working with, with somebody and kind of living in that space of what could be seen as like mundane or simple and small when you have all of these massive stories in your head and this this huge ego that you're coming to it thinking That's, yeah the thing because i mean you know i grew up with the whole kind of with you know i mean with bill's work whether it was like listening to the klf and 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 their videos even are just absolutely epic i mean their last single which is still an amazing tune uh, america what time is love was shot on the james bond stage in shepperton was probably the most expensive music video ever made at the time i mean they were making records with tammy Wynette and the lead singer of deep purple and things like this and they were really really doing epic stuff and the fact that they've kind of deliberately both jimmy and bill have gone back to doing things that are incredibly small scale and personal yeah, it can be a bit frustrating because you kind of think, well, you know, can we not do something a bit more? Mm. But, you know, that's the whole point. It's, the whole point mm. is that he's they've done that stuff and they don't need to do it anymore. And I think what's important to Bill now is figuring out what an artist is because he, he says that when he was in art school as a teenager, he started out wanting to be a painter. And then he kind of started to think, well, what would the, if I was a really good painter, what's the best thing that could happen? Like as a painter, the, the best thing that would happen is that a rich person will buy your painting and it put it on their wall and it becomes worth a lot of money. And he said, well, I don't want to do that then. That's mm. not, I don't think that's a worthwhile goal. So he started to do other things involving, you know, more de democratic forms of art, like records, vinyl records, paperback books, and these very, very small-scale artworks that he does now. Mm. So, yeah, I think there's a, it's an interesting thing to me because, you know, you're kind of always thinking with your work. I think at the present stage in history, with things getting stranger and stranger, you kind of have to think, what's the point of what you're doing? Is there a point? Is it worthwhile? Does it add anything to the world? And I think, you know, he's kind of, his work is kind of tackling those things all the time. And 
actually what he's saying to me now is the problem is he's is his world tour which is going to last for 12 years the next un, until the age of he, it's supposed to end when he's 73 because he expects to die when he's 74 he's worked out his life expectancy so who hence, hasn't hence the title <laughs> best before death he's also bought all the all the jeans he's going to wear for the rest of his life as well he's, okay but you know that's a very good idea that's good that's very sustainable but the yeah, 12 year world great. tour uh, he's saying the problem with it is it involves me flying places and now I'm kind of thinking God, you know isn't that's a terrible thing to do because I'm going to be flying to Papua New Guinea and you know uh, uh, um, Syria and all these places and it's like it's very bad for the environment I'm going yeah I think you got yourself into a, painted into a corner there Bill yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you'll figure it away you know it's so interesting that because like the problem with everything right now is kind of just people chasing growth no matter what whereas they just went well we've had a number one single now you can we can have another one I guess but or we could just do something else yeah. Yeah. and they just keep doing something else it's really I guess it's how we should it's very inspir- it's very uh, role model kind of level thing to do isn't it well, I think well, what he said to me was like they were a band for five years and all bands get worse after five years. Mm. So he kind of, because he's a student of, he knows more about rock and roll and pop music than anybody I've ever met, you know. So mm. he just has a lot of basic lines about, you know, he says, like, for instance, if you're making, a, if you're producing a record, don't play on the record because then you'll start to love the bit that you played on the record and you won't be able to see the record, you know, as, mm. a, as a thing anymore. You stay in the, stay in the, in the booth and you just do the... The, the play with the levels you don't go in the studio and start playing guitar bits no matter mm. how much you're tempted to try mm. all that kind of practical stuff is really interesting even though he stopped doing all that he still he knows it inside out and when he says bands get bands are only good for five years I kind of think yeah I can't think of many exceptions to that there. I'm, I'm mm. thinking in my head I'm like uh, I mean it's not that bands get worse but yeah if, if you're sticking around after five years yeah your best work's probably behind you a band's fourth album is really their best one yeah. <laughs> like very rarely yeah, yeah. So I do yeah. like the idea of of moving um, away or like paring down the kind of high concept work that you might do when you're a little bit younger and then paring it down to something a bit more tactile and still having the same sort of artistic focus with it. Like, I, you know, be, being in a studio and playing with levels and it, having that being your artistic output. And then going and maybe building a table and it's still, mm-hmm. it's just bringing the world. I think there's, there is a move towards that generally in, in art and culture that things are that little bit more tactile now. You know, we're, we all buy coloring books now and we all, <laughs> we have vinyl records and cassettes are back mm. for some reason. Um, <laughs> and, and we love that kind of real world, like I can touch this, I can feel this stuff mm. because everything else is moving towards VR and that's very scary. So... But it's kind of almost like people are <clears throat> surprised that you can see somebody can go to a timber yard, buy wood, and two days later have a bed. You know, because uh, yeah. like, who does that anymore? Yeah. I mean, like when I was younger, I'd take my shoes in to be repaired because I wanted to get my shoes fixed. And now it's like it's kind of hard to find somebody who's going to fix your shoes. Absolutely. You know? mm-hmm. Those kind of basic, you know, things that my parents' generation would have taken for granted don't exist anymore because we kind of just go throw it away, buy a new one. You know? Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I'm sure there are kids and teenagers now who would look at a record being played on a on a turntable and say like that physical thing is making that like how mm. you know it's I remember a, a while ago seeing I don't know if it was fake or not you probably saw it on Twitter as well um, the rotary telephone thing. yeah the rotary telephone <laughs> thing they did it with a Walkman as well I think it was amazing yeah. but I was like I fully like I don't know if this is fake or not because <laughs> I fully believe that if you hand oh, well, me a rotary telephone like in in 20 years time or something or if, if I was you know 15 or 20 years younger than I am now I'd be like what this is just a waste of time oh yeah like we had a rotary phone in my house uh, yeah. I was like five or six I never learned how it worked I never understood how it worked yeah. I still don't really I think I get it but my grandmother had it and I played yeah. with it it was like yeah, a yeah. toy and I'd go back around and go ding and I'm like this is great <laughs> and then she'd be talking into it sometimes like what are you doing <laughs> isn't there a rotary telephone toy in Toy Story and I mean what do people think that is now what oh, is yeah, it? yeah, yeah. <laughs> look at it and go it's some kind of a weird thing with a thing on its head yeah. with a, yeah. a circular face it's got like a frill I guess <laughs> <laughs> yeah but like I mean what's that gonna be mm. like fo- like, like an, an iPhone 4 is like primitive now you know yeah. it's so funny it's mad yeah I kind of it's that thing now where people if somebody pulls out an iPod I go jeez where'd you get that yeah mm. wow iPods I, I wish I still had mine because you know? mm. they're like old tech that you kind of kind of are like so reliable because one of the things that bothers me is the whole thing of like we were talking about streaming and Spotify you know they can take away your music like it's you have yeah. you think you have it and then next thing you, time you go on the license has expired and it's like it's gone out of your yeah, yeah. you know or even like with Apple 
Apple Music, uh, when you send to it originally, they will upload all your music and yeah. match it what they have. Yeah. Some of the versions they have aren't the version on my CD. So yeah. I play it, I'm like, that's not how too many DJs by Solvac sounds. Yeah. You know? That's yeah. not that's not how my version of that song goes. Mm, it's really yeah, weird that they can just just like erase it. I can't even find the version that I have on CD. It's just like there's like four versions on Apple Music. None of them are that version. Mm. It's really weird. Stick to analog. Get your yeah. get your get your DV, DVDs, your Blu-rays, and your CDs and your vinyl because nothing else belongs to you. You know. Yeah. yeah. Because it could just it could go. It could mm. crash. You know. And I I own like I actually physically own very little music. I've probably got about. 40, 50 LPs and like considering the breadth of music that I actually listen to that's nothing mm. like I like the idea of Desert Island Discs gives me severe anxiety like I, <laughs> I have to have like a, a wide range of things to, to be able to listen to and yeah if Spotify just went tomorrow or if mm. iTunes went or, because because Spotify is funny because you, you pay to be able to hear it whereas on iTunes it's like you are buying the file and iTunes are just a little bit iffy about that kind of stuff. Like like, like you mm. said, being d- different versions or they could just decide, oh no, Apple are no longer in a partnership with this artist anymore, so we're not supporting them on iTunes anymore. Mm. So bye. Yeah. You know. And I have heard st- situations where, you know, you buy or you think you've bought a movie on iTunes and then the license expires and it disappears out of your hard drive. Yeah. You've paid like nine ninety nine or yeah. whatever. Mm. It doesn't matter. It's not yours. It never was. Yeah, you didn't physically thing. have it. Yeah. It's, it's happening with vi- video games as well. I stopped playing video games once. Was it, I think it was the PS4 came out and I had to go into some kind of like online store and buy a game. I'm like, no, I just want to go to GameStop and buy the game and put the disc in and then play it. I don't want to oh, yeah. like have all this. I don't want to have it in the cloud. I feel mm. weird about that. It makes me feel like there's other people involved. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas I just want to play my video game. <laughs> that is one thing about music. Like you can, there's a way to listen to every bit of music ever. Whether like yeah. if you have the format. Whereas with games, they can just disappear. Like the Scott Pilgrim game. Yeah, six different people own rights to different bits of Scott Pilgrim, and one of them has taken away those rights, so the game is gone. That's mental. And it's just you can't get it anymore. It's just gone. Was it ever released on a physical? Copy? No, it was only de- ever download, and it's just poop, you can't find it. You can't get it. Huh. Whereas, let, like, you let can still that be a lesson, you know? Yeah. Like that's it. Also, rights holders, cop on, give us the mm. stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what were like some of the most important bands you learned from the enemy? To finish up, like who were who were just quote Mark Maron, who are you guys? Well, the only band I've ever been a member of the fan club for, The Cramps. I mean, I read about because yeah. The Cramps were just this fantastic, uh, larger-than-life kind of Halloween band who, you know, dressed in, you know, uh, Lux Interior, wore women's high heels and uh, leather pants and looked like a creature from the creature from the Black Lagoon. So I was a huge fan of The Cramps, who <clears throat> they were a short-lived band, unfortunately, but they did. They were a gateway drug to an awful lot of other music that I got into, like rockabilly, blues, country, whatever. Particularly, I've, I've spent a lot of time in Memphis um, as a result of listening to a lot of that music, and it mm. kind of changed my life. Uh, and they were, they were the kind of basic influence there. Birthday Party, who, you know, obviously Nick Cave came from that and they were a band that the enemy wrote about again the uh, the the journalist who wrote about them mo- most ended up becoming a junkie because he was hanging out with nick cave for so long um and uh, you know there was that kind of gonzo thing happening again it was it was kind of an interesting you know you kind of they were still i think those writers were still at the tail end of being influenced by hunter s thompson and people like that yeah, yeah. they walked the walk and that was kind of interesting to watch um I don't know, really. I mean, there was a huge amount of, of stuff that you kind of, I would never have heard of, whether it was films. I mean, I, I, I was tweeting recently because somebody said on, on, on Twitter, oh, you know, John Carpenter's 1981 film, The Thing, was absolutely roundly condemned by every newspaper. No good reviews came out of it in 1981. Nobody went to see it. And I responded, well, the NME did a two-page feature on it saying it was the, you wouldn't be able to believe your eyes and mm. it's the greatest film mm. they'd ever seen. And as a result, I went to see it twice. So, I mean, there was a lot of stuff. It wasn't just um, music. They wrote a lot about Scorsese and Paul Schrader and these kind of, you know, kind of edgy filmmakers, I guess, at the time who are now absolutely mainstream. But at the time, it mm. was kind of, you know, it was... It was it was going to see Taxi Driver or the King Comedy. They were not exactly big box office. Mm-hmm. So you know, it kind of like I said at the beginning. You know, when you first asked, you know, it, it, this was the enemy during this period. Kind of provided open doors to an awful lot of stuff that became very very important. It still is very important in my life. So 
you know, I, I don't know what the equivalent is for anybody out there right now because, I mean, what's interesting is everything, I remember really, like, I had a videotape of Mean Streets that somebody had taped off the TV, but it was missing the ending. And me, and my, <laughs> me and my friends watched that videotape like 15 times uh, because there was nothing else we could do. It was like, mm. and we we kind of knew how the, one of us had seen the ending, so kind of could tell the others this is how it ends. But that was that was the equivalent. We had nothing else. Now you can kind of buy it in DVD, Blu-ray, download it, watch it on YouTube, whatever. Mm. Watch the director's commentary. How do people find things like that, though, is the question. I, I wonder. I don't know. I, mean, I think now everything is just a lot more niche. Like with, with, with The Enemy, it, it, it was a kind of a, it's a culture magazine, yeah. really. Whereas now it's like, oh, you like really specific zombie films that are, you know, filmed and set in Iran. Here's <laughs> here's a blog about that yeah. one specific thing. And it's, you know, it's it's great for, for the, I mean, to, to loop back to what we were saying about in the beginning for those like nerds who are like I am so passionate about this one particular thing I'm probably the only person in the world who likes this and then you're like oh no I mean maybe a thousand other people like it yeah because there's enough people to sustain a blog but yeah there's there's very few kind of catch-all and I Pitchfork is still trying to do it and it's just I mean the AV club is there but the AV club is kind of diminished from what it was like eight nine years ago yeah there there are good you know independent um blogs and sites that are that are writing about culture but they be, but they each very much have their own slant on mm. it to the point where it, it they are almost niche now yeah. um so yeah it's it's hard to find a catch-all which is why we don't see them on the magazine stands i suppose mm-hmm. cause they don't sell anything so there we go paul mm. oh, where can we find you on twitter and such and what do you want to promote um, to us on twitter i am mr paul duan m or paul duan and uh yeah my, my film best before death has a facebook page if you just google best before death you'll find it it's uh and the trailer is online and it uh, launches at the ifi documentary festival on the 27th of september and it launches in the uk on the 23rd of september and bill drummond will be present doing performing a play called White Saviour Complex which is basically his response to people's responses to the film so (laughs) he told me he said I've written a play and your film is the second act of the play is that okay and I said yep okay that's fine sounds good to me it is he's he's co-opted my film into his art and I'm proud to be there so uh, if you can come along on the 27th he'll be performing it in Dublin at the IFI 28th Queen's Film Theatre in Belfast and then back to the UK to do a few more Andrea where can we find you I am at Andrea Cleary underscore on Twitter and on Instagram and you can hear me on the Nyler Nine music podcast every Thursday where we talk about music and maybe some other stuff but yeah come to us for music if you you don't know what to listen to if you miss the enemy check us out (laughs) 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 Uh, I am Alan underscore McGuire all the places you can find Juvenalia at Juvenalia underscore pod uh, thank you to Steve McDonald for our artwork. Thank you to Cassie and Tall Tales for recording this. Thank you to Andrea and Paul for stepping in because we had a nightmare week and we had to draft both of you in very last minute. So oh, hang on, I'm thank am you I so lastminute.com <laughs> over here. I don't think they would have been able to tell. I no. think it's going really well. It, thank, you, thank you. Thank both of you very, very much. Thank you for having me. And we have a Patreon. And that's it. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye.